Life throws obstacles at us. And that's neither good nor bad. It's simply a fact. The trick is, what do you do when you're faced with difficulty? Do you back down and give up? Do you look for a way around it? Or maybe you rely on the counsel and support of those you love and trust. You know, we often tell people, you can make it if you try hard enough. But the fact is, there are plenty of people who try really hard, who simply don't have the same opportunities as others. Others who might be more fortunate in their upbringings or surroundings or the people who care about them. The fact is, we need a combination of attributes to help us succeed. We need faith or values that are unwavering. We need resilience, something we talked about in the first season of the show. And we need the support of a network or community that we actively engage in. And when we understand how all of these elements are woven together, we see a compounding effect, one that helps us persevere. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership, principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Well, hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, the show where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to spend with us. We hope that it is a show that is worthy of your time and that the quality of conversation keeps you coming back. We do these shows live every week on Twitter Spaces. And if you're listening now, the benefit is you get a chance to be part of the conversation. My guest and I will have a little bit of upfront conversation to cue things up, but then we'll ask you to participate with any questions or comments to add to the show. And if you don't hear the whole thing, you can tune in later. This is being recorded as a podcast as well. And please subscribe to the Timeless and Timely newsletter, where I regularly write about leadership and communication at TimelessTimely.com. This week, we're talking with David Morales about perseverance and values. David Morales is an author and healthcare executive with over 25 years of executive leadership in corporate America, hospital services, health insurance, government, and entrepreneurship. Growing up in a poor, mountainous region of Puerto Rico, he had no idea he would end up where he is today an executive shaping the future of healthcare, an author inspiring young men and women, and a father. 
Over the last two decades, David has enjoyed a remarkable career in government, corporate America, and the not-for-profit sector. In addition to leading a health benefits company, he served as chief strategy officer for a global healthcare system. He founded his own consulting company, and he enjoyed a rewarding career in public service, serving as commissioner of healthcare finance, a senior official for two governors, and as an advisor to a Senate president and a Speaker of the House of Representatives, respectively. Alongside his wife Samanda, he co-founded Aura Inc., a not-for-profit dedicated to empowering working-class families and low-income individuals, especially Latinos, to build self-reliance through personal financial wellness and wealth building. Of all that he does, his two sons are his greatest legacy. David is launching a new podcast, Grit Machine DNA, where he talks with Americans who have overcome great challenges and have achieved powerful outcomes that benefit others. And his book, American Familia, a memoir of perseverance, comes out in February 2022. David, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Scott, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's an honor to be here with you today. Excellent. Well, you know, uh, there is so much to unpack. I'm fascinated by your memoir um, and, and obviously uh, fascinated by your story. And I want to get to that. Before I do, I noticed there was a word that you use in, in a lot of your correspondence online. Empuja. What does that mean to you? <laughs> Empuja. Uh, I have uh, I have grown up with this word, Scott. It is part of uh, who I am. It means push in Spanish. Um, oftentimes, when I was growing up as a child, uh, I would hear my grandmother talk uh, with other adults. Well, if she was cooking or hanging the laundry, etc., uh, she would see me struggle with stuff on Sundays at her house, and she would say, "Empuja, push, keep going." Um, and I literally have used that my entire life. I use it every day when I, uh, when I work, when, when I manage teams, when I work with my teams, when I encourage my sons, my nieces, uh, it, is part, it is ingrained in part of who I am. And buha, push. I don't care how difficult circumstances are, how difficult your life is, what challenges are ahead. It is a word I apply to everything. And buha, push through it. Get it done. I love that. I love it. And, you know, I mean, it just it embodies so much of what you talk about in the book and, and, and your whole, um, you know, kind of leadership approach. I, I'm curious what you think of uh, you know, when, when people are, well, let's say they're not inclined to push or they feel like they've run out of steam. How do you deal with something like that? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. I, I think about this every day. I was asked once by a dear friend of mine, one of the founders of Bain Capital, Bob White. He asked me a really important question when, um, when I was first writing the book. And he asked me, um, are people built this way or are people, uh, sorry, are people born this way or are people built this mm -hmm. way? Mm -hmm. And my response was, um, it depends, Bob. It depends. Because if you're born into a family, a situation, a culture where this is ingrained in who you are, I think of the gladiators, right? The Greek fighters um, uh, back in ancient Greece, the Spartans, right? They were trained since the age of seven years old to fight. 
Well, that was a culture that they built that way. They built those children to fight. I think of people who uh, may not be acculturated into those situations, uh, whose life's journeys teach them these traits and characteristics. And then, unfortunately, I see some cases where kids and uh, adolescents are not taught these traits or characteristics. And when they're confronted with challenging situations, they, they, they struggle because they don't have some of these key defining supports or traits or characteristics to get through uh, challenging circumstances, however they define those challenging circumstances. So it's a long-winded answer of saying it truly depends. Some people are built this way, acculturated by their, by their circumstances, their family, their, their environments that build us. Others are, uh, have to go through life lessons to build it in themselves. Um, and then there's others that, frankly, I don't think we'll ever get there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a sad fact of, of reality. Not everyone uh, is, is cut out for this. There are some people who just don't have the grit, don't have the perseverance. And to me, there's there's an interesting um, difference. It's a slight difference, but it's a, it's a subtle and important one. The difference between perseverance and resilience. You know, I think perseverance, I think about your grandmother and how she said, Empuha, um, you know, just keep on keeping on, basically, keep pushing forward. And with resilience, I think there, there's a little bit of a spark there, something else that says, even though I've been battered, even though I've been torn down, there's something in me that helps me get back up and, and move again. How, how do you view that, uh, that difference between resilience and perseverance? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, to me, there's a significant difference. With perseverance, there is an inherent underlying DNA inside you that pushes you forward. You have a characteristic that you've either built or you've learned that tells you that there is a bright light at the end of the tunnel should you continue to push through the difficult circumstance, right? So at the end of the day, the Bible teaches us very clearly, right? God sharpens you through difficult circumstances for a better outcome. And perseverance teaches you that. You know that once you get through the difficult challenge, there's a brighter day coming. Resilience is a little is very different in my, in, my, in my view. Resilience is the actual trait of the fight, right? Resilient or gritty, right? I don't think a lot of people ha have a clear understanding of what resilience or grit means. You tenacious, when you have a tenacious, a grit DNA, you are going to fight through anything, anything to get to the place where you need to be. Perseverance is the trait of having the understanding that despite the circumstance, if you can just keep going, there's a better hope for tomorrow. Resilience, tenacity, and grit is the actual characteristic of the fight. You have come to win, and you're going to do anything in your power to blow through the challenge to win. That's great. That That's fantastic. And, you know, it's uh, no coincidence then that your uh, new podcast is called Grit Machine DNA. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, there, I, I really like the word grit because it can be taken a couple of ways. One is it's that kind of that fundamental scrappiness, that, that willingness for us to just kind of just keep pushing that, 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 that sense of, 
Well, again, it, it, it's almost uh, from within, you know. Um, and then at the same time, you think about machines and you think about grit. And if a piece of grit gets into a machine, it's likely to, to disrupt things. And, and the machine has to struggle against the grit. Now, it, it's almost the opposite of uh, what you're talking about. The grit is actually what powers us to keep going, maybe against the machinery of life sometimes. Uh, so I think it's a, a perfect choice of words. Yeah, no question. Yeah, Scott, it's interesting. In, in my own life, just to give you a quick tidbit on on why the grit component, um, my family and I came here when I was roughly 12 years old from Puerto Rico. We had nothing. And we grew up on the streets of Lynn, Massachusetts, a very gritty urban city. At the time, very high crime rates, uh, one of the highest crime rates per, per, per square foot in the nation. And we grew up in a really tough environment, fighting, physically fighting every day. And that's not an exaggeration. And so you had two options. You either learn how to fight and win, or you learn how to become the butt of jokes and, and the beatdowns, just being very graphic. That was how it was. And so my brothers and I chose to fight. And so we had this inherent grit DNA that helped us to survive on the streets of Lynn. And there were two choices, right, to be very clear. You can either choose to um, succeed in that environment or you choose to not succeed. And a lot of those factors were all these culmination of forces that came together to really build inside, uh, you know, my personality, this very, very tough approach to everything that I face, whether it's professional or personal, mm. a very, very tough character to say, okay, this is as hard as it's going to get. Well, that's pretty easy. Let's get through it. <laughs> that's great. David, first, let's, let's go back on this, this journey because you, you started out in America, you returned to Puerto Rico, and then you came back to America. Talk us through that that incredible journey that your family had, and maybe some of the reasons behind it. Sure. So first and foremost, um, Puerto Ricans are Americans. Since 1917, Puerto Ricans have been U.S. citizens. The, the interesting part, however, and I talk very openly about this, the interesting thing is when you learn the history of Puerto Rico, you understand that frankly, it's still a colony, and it was a very, uh, in, in my humble view to this day, it's an experiment uh, that frankly resulted in perpetual poverty for millions of people. Uh, social welfare uh, was experimented in Puerto Rico. Uh, the birth control pill was uh, experimented in Puerto Rico illegally uh, in many women in the 1940s and 50s. And so for me, I view Puerto Rico as a sort of like uh, a microcosm of this experimental place where, frankly, we made a lot of mistakes. Uh, we did some good. We did some harm. And so that's the backdrop of my family's history, along with so many other people from Puerto Rico. Um, and so here is this incredible journey of my, it starts with my grandfather and my grandmother, who were agrarian people. They worked the land, very, very poor. My grandfather started working when he was six years old as a peon used to bring water and food to the workers at five and six in the morning in the fields. And his, uh, to make the long, so long story short, my grandfather, uh, was the first to leave for the world war two. that was the only way out of poverty for most men back in those days on the Island. 
And so he goes to World War II. Um, he essentially comes back, goes to Korea, and then settles in Indiana, where his brother had told him there was a lot of work. Well, the work was really in factories and steel mills. Um, years later, mid fifties, he has my, he brings over my grandmother and my father and they live in Gary, Indiana. Now, for those of you who know Gary at the time, Gary was predominantly African-American area and Puerto Ricans were not accepted by the white community. Um, it bears to note that my grandfather was actually in the last segregated units of the United States army. It was the 65th infantry. Uh, only Puerto Rican men were served in that infantry. So here comes our grandfather, settles in Gary, and he's back to a segregated place. Wow. Um, so my grandfather, my grandmother, his brother all lived in Gary, Indiana, in the black section of the, of the city. My, my father went to Rainbow High School in Gary. Um, in any event, my grandfather, then uh, my father graduates from high school, goes into the service. Um, my grandfather goes back to Puerto Rico, and my father follows him after the Navy. And my family fell. My father became an alcoholic. Uh, the family's financial situation was in dire straits. Um, and uh, as you'll read in the book, uh, God saved my father's life. My father, um, one day, he's, uh, we used to search for food on weekends, ñame, platanos, on the mountainside. When I was a kid with my dad, we used to go shovel for food in the mountains. And one of those mornings, my father came up empty, and he goes to the church. And the pastor said to him, I've been waiting for you. Uh, you belong in the United States. You got to get out of here. You got to provide for your family and God will provide the rest. And that's what happened. Uh, my father comes to the United States, um, finds a one bedroom apartment, living with my cousin who was a crackhead at the time. And my father, uh, by the grace of God, is helped by one of the foremans in the small tool shop. And within two years, our family all came here. Uh, to Lynn, Massachusetts. Um, and the rest is history. We were, for the next 10, 15 years, it was all hands on deck for us to figure out how to get out of working class slash poverty life. And that's what we did. Uh, so the story started there. It started with a group of uh, my sister, my brothers, my two brothers, my parents, uh, trying to find a mutual collective way to help each other uh, get out of the financial situation we were in. Yeah, that is such a powerful story, and I think made all the more powerful by kind of the single-minded direction of the family. You know, you, you were all working together toward a common goal. And what's interesting to me is you, you start this book out. It really is a memoir. You're talking to your two sons, you know, kind of passing down this oral tradition, um, not only the, the storytelling about what happened, but also talking about the values behind it, why it happened. And I have to imagine that growing up in your family, there was a lot of that kind of sharing, sharing of values either by just watching someone do something and the way they worked or the way they, they comported themselves or uh, talking about it over the table or uh, outside or on your way to school or what have you. Can, you. can you share with us a little bit about how your family values have been uh, shared from one generation to the other? Yeah, that's a great observation, Scott. So as as you might know, and, and traditional Caribbean, whether you're from Puerto Rican culture, Dominican or Cuban, or even Mexican, the oral tradition is really important. And my grandparents used to talk to us a lot about our family history. 
when I was a kid. Um, what was interesting about, um, as I think back, what was interesting when we first came to the United States, um, my grandfather and my mother, I'm sorry, my father and my mother worked several jobs. But what was interesting was the role that my sister and my brothers played. They essentially um, became the ones who said, hey, look, we have to figure out how to get out, get through this. And so my mother, who became the backbone of the family because she was home more often than my father, um, essentially focused everybody on three things. Faith, her faith in God was powerful. And everything that happened to the family, she associated with God's grace, God's providence, everything, good or bad. This is God's doing this, and this is good, and we have to stay focused, da, da, da. And she became a pillar around the focus on faith. The second thing was my parents were lockstep together with my grandparents about the importance of family. That started way earlier with my grandfather. My grandfather used to talk to me and my two brothers about the importance of honoring women, the importance of honoring your wife, your wife the importance of keeping your family together, regardless of the consequences, the importance of family for the children to understand their culture. And so family became the second powerful pillar for our family. Everything we did was about the family to the point where my father used to say, if somebody messes with your brother at school, you two jump in. Your family always comes first. You protect the family at all costs. Our name is the only thing we got. So you go protect it. And then the third pillar was resilience and grit. Um, my father was, was focused on, he was a silent guy for the most, uh, for the most of my life. He, he didn't talk much, but his actions spoke a lot of words. My, my father was a burly man. Most of his life, he's very strong and built and, uh, there was nothing my father couldn't do. And my father used to tell us, well, if something's hard, push through it. If somebody slaps you, slap them 10 times. If somebody comes to you, fix it fast take care of the problem immediately. <laughs> and so we grew up with these oral discussions many times from my mother, from my grandfather, who were instilling in us these values that uh, we truly didn't understand until years later. And so to, the book for me became a way of passing on these incredible values to my children and my nieces and nephews and hopefully others who will listen. The, the reality is that, and, and, and I'll get into why we set it up the way we set it up. It was actually the, my, wife, my wife's idea, Samanda, and uh, a, friend, a, a lady who re- helped me wrote the book, Stacey Ennis, who's remarkable. But we set up the book in a conversational style between a father and two sons, frankly, because we rejected the notion that masculinity is bad, number one. Number two, we wanted to share with young men and women, that it's okay to have these conversations as young families, as young fathers. And number three, because if you look at the statistics, Blacks and Hispanic families are falling, right? Fatherless homes are increasing dramatically in Black and Hispanic communities. And so we wanted to show people that men have an incredibly important role to play in families, especially in an oral sense of the tradition, and engage your children. Speak to them. Show them what it means to be a father. Show them what it means to have culture. Help them understand that their journey is not theirs by themselves. It's a longitudinal process that started with someone else years ago, generations ago, to help establish who you are today. 
And it's your responsibility to pass those values on to the future. I, I think that's a profound insight, David. I mean, family and and family traditions are really at the root of so much of this. You know, you you do a great job talking about um, the opportunities that your family had, the way you pushed for those opportunities, or your your parents, your grandparents pushed for those, and it wouldn't have come out the same if they didn't have each other to rely on, if they didn't have that core strength of the family, and. You look around, just as you you cited in those statistics, there are plenty of people now who are suffering from poverty, who don't have the family support system or who don't have the institutional support system to allow them to catch a break every once in a while. Even though they they really want to do it, they just can't catch a break because they don't have the system in place. And so I think it's a a wonderful – kind of movement that you're sparking here to get people to focus on what's beneath all of this. And that is those family relationships. Yeah, no question about it, Scott. I, I fundamentally believe along with my wife and, and by, by the way, this is one of the reasons why we founded out Inc. along with a, a group of friends. We fundamentally believe that regardless of the situation you find yourself in, you have to understand three things. The first is this too shall pass. Life is a longitudinal journey. So when you hear someone say, oh, I'll never get out of this today, well, that's not factually true. Because if you look at the history of mankind, generationally speaking, we always do better each generation, especially in America, where that is true. We do better over generation, over time. So first, remind people, this too shall pass. But two, you must take an active step to improve your situation, not government. Government's not here to help you. Government can't help you. Number two, sure, you can talk to your neighbor and your friends about your situation, but only you can take the appropriate steps to get work through the situation you're in. And number three, there is something powerful. It's called faith. Be rooted in the word of God to help you understand your situation and to help you understand that there's a greater being, in my case, his name's Jesus Christ, that can help you understand how to move through the situation you're in. But make no mistake, if you take specific actions, you or your family will do better. The answer should never be, woe is me. The answer should never be, I can't get out of this. The answer should never be, I'm harmed, I'm a victim, and therefore it's, it's someone else's problem. Someone did this to me. No, the answer is look in the mirror. The person in the mirror has a lot of control over your mindset, over your situation, and over your future. The question is, what will you do to take the steps to address and ameliorate the situation you're in? So that's a perfect segue to speak about Aura, Inc., the not-for-profit that you and your wife put together. Aura, of course, in Spanish means now. Yeah, I, David, I did take eight years of Spanish between <laughs> high school and college, and it's finally paying off, I feel. Um, and by the way, I should note that your name in translation, Morales, means values. Uh, and that's yes, sir. <laughs> entirely appropriate here, so thank you. Um, so so t- talk to me a little bit about Aura Inc., and, and I, I'm, obviously we know what sparked it for you, but talk us through what you're hoping to achieve there. Sure. So Aura Inc., as you appropriately stated, means now. Um, This was a vision um, 
that really originated with my wife, Samanda. One morning about three years ago, um, I was trying to think about my next steps in my career. I had left a very successful company that I helped to build uh, to come raise my two sons. And one morning, my wife says, I, I know what God wants us to do. God wants us to help other people work their way out of poverty. Uh, and I looked at my wife and I said, man, that is a big vision. How do we do that? In any event, over the course of the next year or so, um, we really started down this journey of uh, launching a community credit union, which is like a bank, but with a nonprofit status. And we learned a lot. And what it led us to learn was at least three powerful outcomes. The first one was that the banks were not the, the answer to working your way out of poverty. Banks have a really important role to play. But a credit union's interest rates, if you know, are typically 0.002%, just like the banks, either 0.02% or 0.8%. And so when, you, when you're thinking about building wealth, a bank is not the answer. A checking account is not the answer. A savings account is not the answer. And so that was lesson one. We were like, well, time out. We're, ha- we're after the wrong model. Second lesson was there's a lot of individuals in this country, this incredible country we call America, our home. There's a ton of options for us to build wealth financially if we just have the personal responsibility and the right behaviors to learn how to use our money to make money. And that was a powerful lesson for us that we had learned over the past 20 years, working with our own money. And so we started thinking, third step, how do we create something that helps people to teach them, to coach them, and learn how to fish for themselves to inure or make money from their money. And so what that led to was a process of discovery to create an organization that had two big arms. One, a financial coaching uh, team that taught people how to use their money, how to change their behaviors, how to make investments, how to pick investments, if that's what they wanted to do, how to build their money and budget their money. And then a second part of of the organization, uh, a real live online tool that could help you budget and manage your money. Very simple in a very simple way. Um, And so that's what we started building. We hired developers. We started pulling people together. And we're going to launch uh, in February this incredible tool and this incredible service for just um, a modest sum of money per month, anywhere from 45 bucks for an individual, a little bit more for small businesses, for you to have a 24-7 financial coach with this incredible budgeting uh, and financial health tool online that will help you think differently about your money. And if you're a low-income individual, um, you should understand that 45 bucks a month is peanuts uh, because for for the same service, people with a lot of money are paying thousands of dollars to have a financial coach teach you about money. So we wanted to, we want to make this available to people to say, look, Government's not your way out. Section 8 housing is not the answer. Low-income housing is not the answer. Affordable housing is not the answer. The right answer is learn how to leverage your money, learn how to change your behaviors, and start taking your money to build money for yourself and your family. You're not going to see it in a year, but I promise you, if you take five to 10-year horizon to change how you're deploying and using your money and spending your money, you're going to have a lot of money in the bank and investments for you to start teaching your children to build their personal wealth in the future. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of children, David, we have a, uh, a high schooler 
who is taking a course that they offer at his school on personal finance. And we encouraged him to, it was an elective, we encouraged him to select that over, you know, the standard economics or, um, you know, other kind of institutional financial uh, courses that he could take. Because we thought, this is something that you can take with you throughout your life. This is a tool that will help forge how you think about money, how you think about what you value, how you think about going about building something for the future. And it seems to me that there's an opportunity with Aura to uh, work at the school uh, level, at the high school level or the college level, to make sure that kids are coming out of school with a healthy perspective on their financial future. Totally agree. Totally agree, Scott. Look, I, my wife and I really focus on this. Uh, we just uh, presented to the school committee in the town we live in, Linfield. And one of the things that I said to the school committee was, uh, my job is to teach my kids about culture and emotions. I don't want you doing that. I moved my family to this town to help my kids learn skills that can create value in the future. I'll handle their emotions. I'll handle culture. I'll handle race. You handle skills, right? We've got to teach kids skills like financial health, financial coaching, economics to help them develop their critical thinking skills to create value in the future. That's the goal. The goal is to help people understand that they have power in their mind. If they learn how to use their financial acumen, their money, with certain skill sets of what's available in the market, they can do this. Now, look, if your goal is to become a multi-billionaire, good luck. You figure that out. But our, our approach is to teach people how to strive to define their own personal health and wealth. That's what we're trying to do. Teach people how to use their money to build wealth however they want to define that. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, like, like we talked about before with family, it's just one of these fundamentals that kind of undergirds uh, your direction, undergirds your success. So I think that's a powerful, powerful perspective. David, one of the things that I noted when, when you were growing up, um, both in Puerto Rico and in Lynn was this, this difference between poverty and being poor and, and, you know, the, I think there's a slight difference there. But to me, what really struck me was the attitude that you and your family had, that poor was was really a, a, just, it was a feeling. And you felt that you were wealthy in some of these circumstances. You had the outdoors around you. You had plenty to eat. You felt like you were nurtured by your parents. Can you talk a little bit about maybe people's perspectives of, you know, whether they feel as if they are wealthy and successful or not? Yeah, Scott, it's interesting. I didn't know I was poor till I came to the United States. And let me talk about that. We, we throw this word around a lot, poor, you're poor, et cetera. And we glorify that stuff. And I just don't, I don't glorify poverty. When I was in Puerto Rico growing up as a kid, we had, we didn't have much at all. We had a used car, which was, we had to stop every half hour and put water in the carburetor. Um, my dad was servicing it every, every night in, in the, in the driveway. Um, we had a ch chicken coop. 
we had a, in the in the back of the house a big mountain where my father and my two brothers used to we used to dig for food on on Saturdays. Um, we didn't have materialistic goods. We had nothing. But let me tell you, we had love. We had self respect. We had integrity. We had dignity. Um, we never lacked anything that uh, we needed, which frankly was food. We needed food and shelter, and we had it. And when we came here, it was powerful because. I remember the young kids were the first ones to start talking to me. You're poor. Oh, and by the way, Hispanic kids that look like me, in some cases, darker skin or whatever, black kids that I used to hang out with, you know, poor, you poor this and you poor that and you're poor and you're poor and you're poor. And it was mind blowing to me. And so the way that I've broken out in my, over my lifetime is poverty versus poor. Well, poor is a mindset. If you think you're poor and that's how you want to stay, that's how you're going to live for the rest of your life. And if that's what you glorify, if that's what you put on a pedestal, good luck. That's how you will remain. It is a mindset. It is a mindset that consumes and destroys individuals to this day. I see it every day in, in Lynn and Lawrence and Springfield where I have family. A poor mindset will destroy you. Poverty is a different thing. If you're materialistic, if you if you if you're poor from a materialistic perspective, well, you can do something about that. If you want a car, you can strive to save for a car. If you want to buy a home, you can strive to buy for a home. If you want to earn enough money to buy a watch, well, you can do that. Right? There's a difference between poverty versus poor. When you have a poor mindset and that's what you know and that's what you glorify and that's all you think about, that's where you're going to stay. But if you want to address your poverty, your circumstances, your materialistic goods, et cetera, you can do something about that. And it's amazing how this, this seems to always start with kids. It starts when we're young. Kids just have an eye for it or maybe they're trained by their parents based on you know what they observe um, to call out. Uh, differences. And, and mm-hmm. I, I, you know, similarly, I remember, uh, you know, I grew up in a, a, a small town in Connecticut, very small street, maybe seven houses on our street with a little cul-de-sac. So there was a tight knit group of kids that played together on that street. And somehow the conversation of, you know, well, whether it's what kind of car do your parents drive, what kind of house you live in, or how big it is, or whatever. And I came home, and I asked my parents, are we rich? <laughs> and I'll never forget, my mom sat me down, and she said, well, she said, we don't we don't need to talk about how much money we have in the bank, but the, the fact of the matter is, do you feel like you have a rich life? Do you feel like you have everything you need? And do you feel like we live a life of abundance? And it, it was really, it really was a mindset. It was about how we're prepared to give back to others, to participate in, you know, the community, um, and, and to share whatever good fortune we've had. Um, as well as, you know, my dad was out of work for six months at a time, uh, due to a, a back injury. We had to then rely on other people to help Mm -hmm. prop us up. And it was really, it wouldn't have happened if we hadn't been participating in the first place and had that kind of mentality. Yeah, no question. It's devastating. You, you, you know, when I was growing up, when I first got here, it was like 86, 1986, 87. 
And there were kids that we went to school with that had these jackets, these CB sports jackets. That was the thing. Um, and then I had ASICs. They were, they were uh, Velcro sneakers. You could, you could, you Velcroed them over. And all these kids had these really nice Adidas. And here we are in the middle of a ghetto. Your parents don't have much to give, right? They don't have much money. Uh, my father drove a blue Pinto. For those of you who know, blue Pintos were the worst car Ford ever made. They exploded in the back, basically. And my father had to fix it every weekend. And here we are. And here are these guys who think that because they have a pair of Adidas, that they're like rich or you know successful, right? Because their parents spent all their money on a credit card to buy them Adidas. And my parents, you know, I'm just going to use an old term. They, my parents didn't fake the funk, Scott. My parents were like, hey, put the ASICs on, go to school, shut up. And that's how it was. And so when I grew up and somebody said, hey, you pour this piss best, it was a fight. I was ready to grow. I was like, what'd you say to me? <laughs> but for me, it was a mindset. I wasn't poor. This was just temporary. I'll get out there. I'll get through this. And that's if when, when you read my book, that's how I talked about it. I saw everything from we're never, ever going to be poor. We're going to get out of this. This is not who I want to be. And, and in many cases, the young kids get to stuck into this thing where this is cool. No, it's not cool. It's not cool to be poor. And if you truly understood what poverty was, the way I knew about it when I was growing up, you'd understand it's not cool. You'd want to do something about it. So we've got to really change the way that we teach our kids about values and the way we teach them to think about their, their own circumstances about poverty. Yeah, and uh, speaking of change, um, well, one of the uh, one of the chapters in your book is actually called Cambio, which is, of course, is uh, Spanish for change. It seems to me that in your life there have been instances where there's been a transformational moment. You know, you you, you talked about your dad um, as an alcoholic and having that transformational moment at church where. He, he just, he got down on his knees and he, he pledged to, to do better. He wanted to change. And, and there was this moment that went on like a light bulb for him. And for you, you had that instance around seventh grade when you were a little overweight and you had an incident with your father and that kind of suddenly snapped something to your attention. Do, do you think we require these transformational moments or can transformation come from just the everyday? Well, that's a that's a powerful question, Scott. Hmm. I'm going to suggest that every one of us, I think there there there, there are multiple sides to this one, right? There, there are instances where, for those of us who might either be going through or uh, have gone through traumatic experiences that have transformed our lives, I would venture to say that the majority of times we've had a deep personal transformational event take place in our lives that propelled us to better. Okay. That's, that's my, my sense of that. Number one, number two, I think there are rare instances where just in living the course of your day-to-day life, uh, you, you, you become perceptive about your own circumstances, um, and maybe get to a place over time where you change. But I, I do think on this one, most of the time there's a transformational experience that helps us to transcend who we are, how we're living, and helps us to change. Um, in my case, frankly, it's my relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, it was transformational for me and, and still is in my life. 
Uh, for others, it's events. For others, it's experiences. Uh, but I do think for deep transformational change, there has to be events or episodes in your life to help you to understand time out. This is not where I want to be, or I need to change because of X, Y, Z. I do think it takes traumatic or transformational experiences. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, that's a great observation. I mean, people will get inspired from all kinds of things. You know, I, I think the, the best leaders are those that have an open mind that are observant around them. They're not self-absorbed. And the inspiration may come from religion. It may be spiritual. It may be based on something you happen to read or watch on TV. But I think having that kind of mindset, that willingness to be changed, is incredibly important. Yeah, I agree. So um, I'm, I'm curious, David, your, uh, your sister and your brothers, two, uh, three older uh, siblings in your life who really helped shape so much of how you developed. Um, how are they doing? Where, where, where are they now? Yeah, they're doing great. Uh, my sister was like my second mom for a long time when I was growing up. My sister is a teacher um, in the city of Lynn. She's had a remarkable career shaping kids' lives. My uh, The next brother is Dan, and he's doing tremendous. He's also an entrepreneur. He um, he's just had a, an incredible career. He had, he was actually a detective for ten years in the gang unit in Lynn, where he had an, a remarkable career, and then left. And he's do, doing great things. And then the next brother's Dwayne, and Dwayne works in construction, and he's he's doing well. Um, he's uh, he's had some <laughs> changes in his life to you know look back on, uh, but is in a much better place now. Um, so yeah, we we've all chosen to do different in our lives, but um, I could make a strong argument that we've all had to date incredible, incredible lives uh, and careers. Yeah. And, you know, I can't say I'm surprised based on uh, what I know of you from the book and what we've talked about here over the last uh, almost hour or so. Uh, I think that's a testament to everything you're talking about, those values that your parents and your grandparents set you up with, uh, that grit, that hard work ethic, um, all of those things together. Um, I think made uh, made what sounds like some valuable career choices for each one of you. So that's wonderful to hear. David, any last thoughts or words of wisdom for us before we take our leave? <laughs> words of wisdom. Well, look, Scott, um, you know, I, I love the conversation. One, one of the things that really attracted me about this conversation was the, your, the name of your, your, your podcast, Timeless Leadership. Um, and I do want to spend a couple of minutes on this. Um, I've never viewed myself as a leader. I, I, view, I have always viewed myself as a servant. I believe that the best way to teach others is by serving. Um, and so I love the phrase timeless leadership. But um, throughout history, there have been remarkable people that have done remarkable things, uh, like Teddy Roosevelt, like Abraham Lincoln, like George Washington, uh, like Sister Rosetta Tharp, I don't, I don't think I'm anywhere near any of any of them. So I'm not a leader, but what I am is somebody who is willing to serve, somebody who is willing to work extremely hard and diligently to find answers to problems or to create value in my professional life. 
And so I love the notion of leadership because we, we easily throw this word around. Um, many times when some of my friends will say, oh, you know, this leader, an elected official, I remind people elected officials are not leaders. They're, they're your elected representative. A leader is somebody in your community who is doing transformational things to change people, people's lives at the ground level. So when you have a counselor at a YMCA or Boys and Girls Club and they've spent 25 years changing kids' lives, that's a leader. When you have a pastor of a church who has never left that community in 40 years, despite that community's deep poverty, but they're bringing to bear a transformational change in people's lives to lead them spiritually, that's a leader. When you have somebody, a mother, who does nothing but care for her children to ensure that they're getting the right academic and educational instruction, that's a leader. And so I love the phrase, uh, but I apply it differently. I truly believe that leadership is about serving other people and ensuring that we're building the future of America. This is the greatest country on the planet. Leaders are made. We have to shape our kids to help them understand that in this country, anything is possible, anything. And if you want to be a leader, you have to start by teaching others, serving others, supporting others to do better. So well said. Servant leadership is really what it's all about. That is the, the core of leadership. And if you heard in our introduction, we quoted Dolly Parton saying, if your actions inspire others to dream more, uh, learn more, do more, or become more, if you do any of those things, then you're a leader. It doesn't require the title, doesn't require the grandiose uh, salary or the long tenure. It's really about how we serve humanity every single day of our lives. Well, David, thank you so much for being a part of this and for sharing American Familia, your memoir of perseverance. Thank you so much, Scott. It was a real honor to be here with you today. Thank you. If you want to be successful, the first thing you need is a sense of perseverance. But grit alone won't get you there. It's through strong values shared with a vibrant community around you that will boost your chances. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader.